I'm Eric Schatzker, and welcome to Bloomberg's Front Row. Today, I'm talking to Jeremy Grantham, the revered value investor and co-founder of Boston's GMO. In the dying days of the Trump administration, Jeremy warned U.S. stocks are in a bubble of epic proportions. Now he worries more stimulus to fight the COVID-19 pandemic will only inflate the bubble further, and no amount of Fed liquidity can stop it from bursting. This is a monetary game, and you can keep these little monetary bubbles going for just so long, as long as you keep confidence rising. But when confidence has reached these levels, the history books are pretty clear. It's very difficult to increase your enthusiasm from a state of mild hysteria where we are today. Jeremy and I covered a range of timely topics. What happens when the market finally cracks? The right way to invest in a zero-rate world. How President Biden can fix the market and help the economy. Why there's a crisis in American capitalism. Here's my conversation with Jeremy Grantham. Jeremy, it's good to see you. Good to see you. You believe that the bull market that started in March of 2009, the longest bull market in history, has matured into a speculative fever of rare proportions. In your words, a fully-fledged epic bubble. Tell me more. It would be surprising if you could have one that long that didn't end up with uh, animal spirits uh, beginning to freak out a bit. And uh, this one has. Normally it takes a, a nearly perfect economy and friendly uh, Fred be fed behavior. Uh, but this one has managed to do it with a, a somewhat wounded economy on a global basis. Uh, and to compensate for that, we've had even more spectacular Fed friendliness and government friendliness. So we've had, for once, the joining of fiscal spending with, uh, with the Fed's behavior and the usual moral hazard that has been going on for since Greenspan arrived in, in the 90s. And, and the result of this is, is the confidence has risen and risen until finally people are reaching for the greatest demonstration of confidence they have had in their investment career. They're borrowing more money to throw it into the market. Their belief in the market is profound. Uh, the common wisdom is that with the Fed on your side, how can you lose? When they first said that back in Greenspan, there were a few doubters. When they said it with Penanke, there were less doubters, but some, and now finally, there appear to be almost no doubters at all. The belief is more or less complete that all it takes is the Fed on your side and stocks will rise forever. What are some of the signs we'll all look at with the clarity of hindsight and say, of course it was a bubble? If you want crazy ones, and you need crazy, by the way, that's the best timing uh, for a bubble top is crazy behavior. Uh, you look at the over-the-counter uh, trading. Uh, I was a big over-the-counter trader in a speculative bubble of 1969, I'd almost forgotten there was a over-the-counter. But they, uh, last February, it, it traded about 80 million shares for the month. And it worked its way steadily through the year until November uh, was about 380. So it had gone up four times. 
And, and then in December, it went to 1.15 trillion shares for the month. <laughs> Having tripled, it then tripled again in the single month of December. I can't tell you what it's going to be in January. But these are spectacular performances. My, my own uh, stock in uh, QuantumScape, it, uh, it came into the market at 10 and, and shot up uh, to 130. At 130, uh, it was bigger than General Motors or Panasonic. Uh, and this is a, a, a brilliant company, but it has no trouble admitting that it won't be producing any batteries for four years. So no sales, no profits, and bigger than GM. There is nothing like that in 1929, nothing of that scale, nothing like that in 2000. The Cisco's of the world were pretty serious companies, uh, but they didn't, they didn't get to this level. Not 1929, of course, ran into uh, the Great Depression and global trade problems. So um, you really just want to look at the first leg down, which was big enough. The analogy is much better with 2000. In 2000, it went down 50%. And the reason it only went down 50 and, and bounced back uh, relatively quickly was, uh, was because the Fed came charging in uh, to the rescue. And uh, you can have a lot of rescues when you start at a 16% long government bond in 1982. You can have a bull market as you go down from 16 to 12 and another bull market from 12 to eight and another bull market from eight to four. But now you're down at two and a half or whatever. Uh, you have to realize that most of the easy pickings uh, of, of saving the game by ramping rates down is behind us. At the lowest rates in history, uh, you don't have a lot in the bank to throw on the table, do you? No. At least it doesn't appear going, by, going by conventional monetary theory, no. That's right. And, and the idea that, you know, fundamentals, the real world doesn't count. All you need is money uh, to generate real wealth. I think most people can, can feel is an illusion. You can imagine a situation where you had a much more serious virus. The economy really was on its knees. Uh, and, and the Fed was obviously would be doing everything it could. Would that be enough uh, to, uh, to save the system? In the end, the system is about the number of people working, the amount of capital spending, the, the quality of education of your workforce. That's the real world. We're talking about the paper world. And there's just so much blood you can get out of that. Would a bubble have formed absent the COVID-19 pandemic? It's the COVID brought in spectacular excesses on the part of, of the Fed and the government uh, writing checks. And uh, I say excesses, perhaps it was necessary, but in any case, uh, it was unprecedented and the combination was very powerful. W without COVID, we cannot know. The market had resisted uh, opportunities to bubble earlier in this 11-year cycle. It looked like it was getting pretty close about three years ago, and then it just kind of fizzled away. The confidence dissipated. The market had a, a decline. And those bull markets can go on forever, and you don't know how long, and you don't know how high they can go. The back of every bear's mind must surely be Japan. Japan, in 1989, managed to get to 65 times earnings. It had never previously gone over 25. 
until that cycle. So that is the thing that makes the bears wake up in the middle of the night sweating. So you just don't know how long and how high a market can, can go if you avoid the burst of euphoria. It's the burst of euphoria that typically brings these things to an end. And we are seeing it all around us today. Jeremy, you recently called out Tesla as emblematic of crazy investor behavior. Uh, and there's no question that by any measure, Tesla's valuation is high and possibly extreme. But I'm reminded of the experience of David Einhorn, for example, or Jim Chanos. Anyone who has bet against Elon Musk has lived to regret it, so far, anyway. Well, that would be the case when the stock is at its high, right? Any stock at its high, you could say that with a straight face. The and I suppose is, I, I suppose I just did. I guess what I'm getting at is um, those shorts turned out to be painful because the stock kept going up. Going short is for a handful of superstar experts, isn't it? Because, you know, when you go short, you can not just lose your money, you can lose multiples of your money. At least when you're going long, all you can do is lose what you put in. You go short and you can get margin called uh, into bankruptcy. And a lot of people have done over, over the years. So uh, I, my recommendation is do not, do not go short individual stocks. Going short the market is painful enough on occasion, but going short individual stocks is, is for mugs and for the three or four people who are brilliant enough to get away with it. As you've noted, just because stocks are overpriced, it doesn't mean that, that a bubble, if we're in one, is necessarily uh, about to pop. What is to stop valuations from climbing even higher for years, possibly? Um, put it this way. When you have reached this level of obvious super enthusiasm, the bubble has always, without exception, broken in the next few months, not a few years. It's always. You can't maintain this level of near ecstasy. It can't be done because you've put in your last dollar. You are all in. What are you supposed to do beyond that point? You can't borrow any more money. You can't take any more risk. In fact, you know in your heart of hearts, you have never taken this level of risk and you never thought you would. It's just that this opportunity is so exceptional. Uh, this is going to be your once in a lifetime. And, and how do you keep that level of enthusiasm going indefinitely? What if it's not your money? What if it's the Fed's money? What if it's the Treasury's money? Yeah, no, that, that of course is a very good point. And uh, you can never call a bubble to a, a few weeks or even a few months. And if the government is going to uh, write unprecedentedly large checks to some of the players in the market, uh, then indeed their all-in position can, can expand one last desperate notch. And uh, the, the sad truth of, of a lot of the quote stimulus is that it didn't increase uh, capital spending. Um, it didn't increase much in the way of, of real production. Uh, but it uh, flowed, a lot of it, eventually into the market one way or the other. 
And I have no doubt uh, some of this new round of stimulus will. And uh, if it's as big as they talk about, uh, this would be a very good uh, making of a top uh, for the market, just of the kind that the history books would enjoy. And we will have a few weeks of extra money uh, and a few weeks of putting your last desperate uh, chips into the game and then an even more spectacular bust. The market is going to end up, as we know, where it is going to end up. And all the paper in the world will not change the level that is justified by the flow of dividends and earnings. That is, after all, the only thing you can end up eating is the flow of dividends. And sooner or later, the stock market will once again, boring, boring, sell on the future flow of dividends. And that is not going to be changed materially by the size of the check we get in the next few weeks. Jeremy, even some of the skeptics were awed by the power the Fed displayed back in March. In a single day, with a single announcement on March the 23rd, it was able to engineer a revival of the credit market and ultimately a spectacular uh, rebound in stocks. And those same people wonder if the Fed could prevent a bear market collapse then, why can't it, through whatever means it conjures up, prevent a bear market collapse now? If you go back to before the COVID, uh, what you see is we have lost considerable strength in the economy. We have fewer people working and we have a, a reduced stream of goods and services, and yet the price is much higher. So if, the, if you believe in market efficiency, which is wrong? Was it wrong before or is it wrong now? But is it really justified that we have delivered a serious wound to the global economy and the global stock market has gone way up? It doesn't feel right. I think we all know that. This is a monetary game and you can keep these little monetary bubbles going for just so long, as long as you keep confidence rising. But when confidence has reached these levels, the history books are pretty clear. It's very difficult to increase your enthusiasm from a state of mild hysteria where we are today. There are many arguments for why current valuations are appropriate, even conservative. I suspect you've considered them all. They range from discounting future cash flows at a lower rate to reach for yield by institutions that have targets to meet, yeah. to the difficulty of modeling modern businesses. I take it, Jeremy, you find none of these arguments the slightest bit persuasive. You know, I've been around to see a 16% 30-year bond, uh, and I now see it, whatever it is, two and a half. And, and uh, we've seen real rates um, in 2000, real rates on the tips was 4.1, 4.2, real guaranteed forever. And now they're nothing, of course, they're negative. And they're negative all over the world. And, and what you're doing, therefore, is you're saying, we've got an artificial interest rate structure, clearly artificial, that has been dri driven down all over the world into negative territory. 20% uh, of government bonds have a negative real return. 
And we're going to use that as a yardstick. We're going to say stocks are cheap because they are less utterly ludicrous than a 30-year bond or cash, which is deeply negative. Uh, this is not typically the way you measure things by taking a ludicrously mispriced comparison. And that's what we're doing. It makes people feel happy. It doesn't make me feel happy. Jeremy, if you're right, and we're on the cusp of the bursting of an epic bubble, is now the time to, as they say, sell everything? I suspect selling everything would work out just fine. However, having said that, there are major discrepancies, as there were in 2000, between the US tech, um, which is overpriced the same as it was in 2000, and everything else. So the value stocks, um, the low growth stocks, if you prefer it, um, are about as cheap relative to the high growth stocks as they ever get. So they will not have the same pain, uh, but they're still at risk to some degree, I suspect. The good news is that overseas, they have not had this same huge bull market and the same overpricing that we have had. And that, and that of course, is a heaven-sent opportunity because you can go out into the emerging markets and they are absolutely not that expensive despite the ridiculous argument of comparisons with a overpriced bond market. They're simply not that bad anyway. And compared to the S&P, they're as cheap as they have ever been about. They've been this cheap two or three times and each time it's worked out very well. So you can buy uh, emerging markets and you can look at the intersection of those two ideas, which is the low growth stocks or the value stocks within emerging and they are um, handsomely priced. You should be able to make a really decent 10, 20 year return there. You will not make a handsome 10 or 20 year return from US growth stocks. There is in the end a simple arithmetic. The higher you bid up the price of an asset, the lower uh, the long-term return you will get. There is nothing you can do to change that equation. Every day the market goes higher you know only one thing with certainty, that the long-term return will be less than it was the day before. Jeremy, growth stocks have, over the course of the bull market, outperformed value stocks by almost 400 basis points. What if, after the bubble pops, growth is still ahead and there is no redemption for the value investor? What happens if that happens, then there'll be a lot of sad value managers. <laughs> now, the question is, will it happen? Uh, and it would be historically unprecedented were that to happen. I'm, I'm pretty certain it will not. However, having said that, let me say one thing about value. Um, I have no confidence and have not had any for over 20 years in uh, price to book and PE and price to cash flow, price to sales, even as a measure of true value. Um, a measure of true value is the long-term discounted uh, value of the future stream of dividends. A growth stock is of course worth a higher uh, ratio of this, that, and the other than a low growth stock. But that doesn't mean they can't be overpriced. So value should be cheap for what you are. You should build in the growth, you should build in the quality, and if it's overpriced, it's overpriced. But to use a simple-minded measure 
of book is a crazy idea. Uh, a cheap book is the market's vote on the worst assets out there in the marketplace. The lowest PE is the market's vote on the worst earnings, most likely to be overstated or downgraded. And the same with yield. It's the market's vote of the most likely to be cut. These have no business being a, a good indicator of future performance. Besides cash and value and emerging market stocks, is there anywhere else for an investor to hide? I'm also worried, by the way, about inflation. It, uh, if you think you live in a world where output doesn't matter and you can just create paper, uh, sooner or later, you're going to do the impossible, and that is bring back inflation you know, that we haven't seen for 20 years. And, and uh, you keep it up on a global basis, you will, you will have inflation. And, and I can't help but notice that around the world, uh, the commodity prices of all, of all kinds, really, but particularly critical uh, food and, and critical uh, metals are going up. And uh, if you have that happening and you have a rapidly declining growth rate in, in the workforce um, towards zero and negative, uh, you are really set up for this time is different. So we are not just in, in, in a bubble market, but we're looking at a global economy that is at an inflection point uh, to turn down in, in long-term growth rate. So this is, this is a bad time to be caught uh, uh, over speculating. What is the right way to allocate, irrespective of the bubble? What is the right way to allocate in a world of zero rates, stimulus ad finitum, declining productivity, the potential for inflation, and the list goes on. Yeah, first of all, very difficult. And secondly, of course, diversify. It's always a, a huge advantage. And thirdly, amazingly, um, the low growth stocks in, in the emerging market world are, are, are perfectly reasonable. If you, if you need to own stocks, and, and most people do, that would be a perfectly a good way to go. And uh, I also think uh, shares that benefit from the greening of the economy um, uh, will do much better than the rest. Anything to do with uh, renewable energy, the electrification of the system, um, electric cars, etc. Uh, these are all going to have top line revenues that dwarf the declining growth rate of, of the rest of the, of the global economy. It will take trillions of dollars to, to decarbonize the global system. It will dominate everyone's portfolio. And, and if you have to own uh, U.S. stocks, they're the ones to own. And uh, look around for, for a good climate change fund. I'm happy to say GMO has one. And, it, and, and they're doing very well now that the focus is clearly, uh, finally, took 20 years to wake up. But in the last year, people really are beginning to understand the size of the problem and the need to move money uh, in, in, into uh, greening the economy. Jeremy, you've invested in gold before. Do you see any promise, as a growing number of investors do, in Bitcoin or other forms of cryptocurrency? What, what is the future value of, of the dividend stream of Bitcoin? I can tell you that. That doesn't take a, a prize-winning mathematician. It is nil. Um, it will never pay you a dividend. 
if you're desperate, can you eat it? No, you can't. Uh, its entire value is on the greater fool, uh, is it not? So Bitcoin could be worth a million dollars a unit if you can find someone to pay it. So Couldn't we say the same about gold? Doesn't generate any dividend stream? There are two things. Can't, can't eat it either? Yeah, that, that should give you a measure of restraint in your enthusiasm for gold, granted. But gold has had the odd 12,000-year test, which has just passed pretty well. And uh, Bitcoin has got a few years to go yet to catch up. And secondly, uh, gold does have some fallback qualities. Um, it doesn't tarnish. Uh, it's unique in that sense. Everything that was ever made of gold is still around. And that's a pretty handy characteristic that Bitcoin also lacks. So I would say, yes, I'm nervous about gold because I can't eat it and because it pays no dividend, but it has two wicked advantages over Bitcoin. Bitcoin is 100% faith. And come the next market phase where faith is at a minimum, what do we think will happen to a stock whose entire reason for existence is faith and nothing but faith? Jeremy, you and your partners at GMO are willing to lose assets in the conviction that you'll be proven right. What's the incentive for publicly traded asset managers, firms with trillions in assets, to test clients' patience if the outcome might not be known for years? This is the easiest question of the day. They have no incentive. It makes no commercial sense at all for them to uh, attempt to uh, warn the clients of impending doom, ever. It is terrible business uh, to blow the whistle on a major bull market if you're a commercial enterprise. You make your money uh, by having the bubble keep going. So let me ask you this, who or what do you hold most responsible for the excesses of the present mania? I, ironically, I, I'm tempted to say uh, Alan Greenspan, uh, only because he set us on this course of talking and, and acting along the lines of moral hazard. He, he bragged that he had contributed to the strength of the economy uh, through the wealth effect. There is indeed a wealth effect. If you have the market double, three or 4% of that gets spent and helps the economy. Uh, he was right, and he bragged about it. And then following him, uh, Bernanke bragged about it, uh, that he, they had contributed uh, to the uh, health of the economy. And they had. And now the Fed also uh, brags that it has done its part and it's helped encourage the economy through, through high asset prices. All of it's true. The bad news, however, is we live in a world that is, in the end, a real world of people and production. And in the end, therefore, despite Alan Greenspan's enormous willingness to create a new permanent golden era of productivity, et cetera, et cetera, uh, the, the S&P still came down 50%. And the Nasdaq still burst and went down 82%, despite his fanatical uh, interest in, in uh, moral hazards and helping out stock market prices. The point is they did not brag of the negative effect 
of the market mean reverting back to normal. It comes in at just the time you don't need it, and it sucks out of the economy a negative wealth effect, and as it will this time. Should the Biden administration take steps to curb speculation in financial markets or rein in, say, SPACs, perhaps, or Robin Hood? Yeah, they should, but they won't. That's easy. <laughs> SPACs are completely, should be a completely illegitimate instrument. They're just an excuse for uh, people with reputation and marginal ethics to, um, to raise a lot of money, take 20% of it for themselves for a quick dash around the country for six months. And um, a, a complete ripoff in the sense that the professional hedge funds uh, then always liquidate before taking any real risk and take uh, uh, the premium that they can get and a few uh, warrants, uh, leaving the half of the marketplace uh, that retains it, who put their money up on aggregate with a very bad return. Of course, they'll make some money in, in the late stages of a bubble. But if you look at the first six years, they have a handsomely uh, sub-average return for taking all the risk. No, they, they don't have enough uh, legal requirements, enough restraints, enough checking. Uh, they're, they're a thoroughly reprehensible instrument, in my opinion, and should be uh, um, disallowed. They, they should, of course, reform the IPO. The IPO is a license to reward the uh, fidelities of the world uh, at the open. Um, you could do better than that. Direct listing made a little easier would be the way to go. But SPACs are terrible. You've become a big believer in green investing, Jeremy. I'd like to know more about the story behind QuantumScape, the battery maker you invested in, and which, somewhat ironically, went public via a SPAC merger. It, it, it's full of ironies. Um, and I, I hated SPACs long before I, I found myself owning one. Uh, but it wasn't just owning one, it was owning slightly the biggest investment uh, of my life. And uh, One that's made that, you hundreds of millions of dollars, as I understand it. Well, a whole lot less now. Uh, the stock has come down from 130 to, uh, uh, to 54 uh, in, in, in a month, uh, which is, by the way, a typical precursor of a bubble breaking. If you're looking for the very early warning signs of a bubble breaking, you find the stocks that have done the best, uh, SPACs and, and particular SPACs and Tesla and, and, and uh, Bitcoin, and, and you wait until they start to have these big daily drops, and then they recover and they drop and they recover, uh, and, and, and that's the very early warning. And the market in 2000, for example, didn't go together. Uh, they took out the pet.coms and shot them. The rest of the market continued to go up. It, it didn't even deign to notice the shooting of those little guys. They were only worth scores of millions or a couple of hundred million. Then they took out the junior growth stocks and shot them and the market kept going up. And then they took the medium growth stocks and shot them. And, and finally, by the summer, they were shooting the Cisco's. And the, the entire tech uh, part of the market had been shot. And that had been 30% at the market peak of the total market cap. And yet, the S&P by September was at the co-equal high of March, which meant that the other 70 had continued to rise. So that is a typical way. Bubbles don't necessarily break en masse. But having, having sliced off the tech and, and, and the dot-coms, uh, the end 
Then finally, the 70%, like a giant iceberg, rolled over en masse, the 70%, and went down for two and a half years uh, uh, by 50%. You've been concerned and written about the state of economic inequality for years. Tell me, what do you think is the right way to correct it? I think the, the nurturing of moral hazard uh, and, and management through uh, monetary policy as opposed to fiscal policy has been um, dreadful for income inequality because by pushing up asset prices, you do two things. You make it difficult to impossible for people to get on, on into the game the purchase of a house is just too expensive. The purchase of anything in stocks uh, is a much higher per unit of, of uh, dividend or yield than it was. So that's brutal. Secondly, the compounding, the long-term compounding of wealth is, is reduced. If you have a 6% yield on your, on your assets, you can, by reinvesting that, uh, you can double your money in 12 years. If you turn it into a 3% yield by doubling the price, um, yeah, you, you, you're worth more on paper, but in real life, you only eat the dividends and now they're 3% a year and you double your money in 24 years. So in 48 years, you're down uh, to a quarter of what you would have been and, uh, and so on. And the gap becomes ruinously wide. In other words, the higher the asset price, the lower the rate at which you can compound wealth. And if you're not on the game, you're not in the game, you're a beginner, uh, you, you can have great difficulty ever getting into that game. And by definition, it means that the rich get richer as you price down uh, the, the, the yield and you mark up asset prices. And, and, and the poor get squeezed uh, because you're not creating any real value. You're not creating more production. And uh, government spending is quite different. If we can have, instead of writing checks to everybody, if you can write checks for infrastructure, particularly green infrastructure, you're killing two birds with one stone. You're doing necessary investing, decarbonizing the economy, that if you don't do, may be such a shock in as little as 20 or 30 years that it begins to destabilize the global system of civilization. It becomes unstable. Um, you have to do it. And you turn it into a virtue uh, because uh, many of the areas have a, a high societal return. If you put in an efficient grid, everybody benefits. If you put in well-insulated homes in every cold area of the country, the society makes a huge return. We use less energy. These are handsome returns at the societal level. How do you go wrong uh, by doing more of that and less buying of, of, of Chinese uh, stuffed dogs? Um, so I, I certainly hope that um, the incoming administration will have a continuous, um, strong uh, public spending program emphasized at repairing bridges and roads. That is fine. But doing a green infrastructure, wind, solar, storage, research, training, retraining of people for green jobs and, uh, and all the tens of trillions of dollars we need to spend. Get it done, it has a high return. In the end, it may save our bacon. I've heard you say American capitalism is too fat and happy, too conservative, too monopolistic. 
Is American capitalism in crisis? Yeah, uh, it, it's not the crisis that comes over a weekend. It's a kind of rolling crisis that starts very slowly, a bit like bankruptcy, <laughs> very slowly at first and then maybe uh, very quickly at the end. But this has been going on since the mid 60s, which was the sweet spot uh, of American capitalism and the social contract, by the way. A corporation in the mid-60s felt it had responsibilities to its workers. It, it was on the cusp of starting a, a, a nice uh, pension fund, a defined benefit. It didn't have to do that, um, but it did. And it was a very generous, well-constructed, important program. Um, and and uh, it felt it had responsibilities to the city. It, it was working in the state and, and, and of course, the federal, the country. Um, all of that is largely gone, but it didn't go overnight. It drifted slowly away in the 70s, particularly in the 80s and the 90s. And Milton Friedmanism, he has a lot to answer for. You know, the idea that the only social responsibility of a corporation is to maximize profits um, is, is a terrible business formula, uh, we believe, at GMO anyway. Uh, but it's a, a shockingly uh, amoral uh, way to run anything. And, and we treat corporations as if they're individuals and they have a lot of individual rights, which is uh, ludicrous in my opinion, but we do. But if you look at Milton Friedmanism at the corporate level, that's sociopathy by any definition. If you say as an individual, my only interest is to maximize my advantages, which is what they say at the corporate level, you're a sociopath for heaven's sake. And, and, and we are not as individuals like that. A lot of us uh, do the odd altruistic act. And, uh, and those odd altruistic acts are incredibly important in the long run that a few people, uh, hopefully like Biden, come out of the woodwork and set a good, set a good example and lead. Um, that's the difference between an autocracy in the end and a healthy uh, democracy. Jeremy, I wanna thank you very much for taking this time to talk to me. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.